Amen. Uh, you can remain standing and open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us to have hearts of humility, hearts that would be open to accept what you have intended for our marriages, for our sexuality. Father, I pray that in the midst of confusion on this topic, that there would be clarity this morning. And Lord, I just pray that we would see that this is not to restrict us, not to somehow take away our joy, but Lord, you are fighting for our joy. This is your grace, this command, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that you would be exalted, that Jesus would be glorified this morning through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, aloha, welcome to you. Um, you can all be seated. Um, if you're standing in the back um, or coming in, um, a little insider secret, the seats up front are a little softer, a little more comfortable, um, but we're glad that you are here worshiping Jesus with us this morning. Um, parents, just a heads up, I'm sure you already know, but the topic might not be appropriate for all children. Um, we're going to use the word sex a lot today. Um, we do have a great cakey ministry if you want to take your kids there, but if you think your kids can handle it, we won't judge you. They can be here with us. Um, all right, so we are going through uh, the book of Exodus, and um, we have kind of, as a church, decided to camp out in chapter 20 and go through the commandments uh, one by one and see what God intends uh, through them for us. And so before we get into, um, if we, before we really dive into what it means, uh, what God means by you shall not commit adultery, we have to define the terms. We have to define what adultery means. Um, and simply put, adultery is extramarital sex. It's an affair. Um, it is to betray the spouse that you have committed to in marriage and go out and find sexual fulfillment outside of your spouse. So that's a definition of adultery. And so, for a moment, imagine you go to the zoo. And as you're walking through with your kids, maybe, maybe by yourself or with your spouse, you see all these signs posted. Um, do not feed the animals. Or do not try to touch the animals. It means don't climb over the fence and go try to pet the tigers or lions or whatever other animals are there. Why? Why are those signs posted? Because the animals will probably eat you. So the do not feed, do not touch, don't try to go there and pet them, those signs are not just some rules that are trying to prevent us from having fun. I mean, it would be fun probably to be chased by a gorilla, but we all know there is a positive aspect of those posted signs. There is grace in it. There is a concern. There is a care in that command. 
And the warning is there to make sure that at the end of the day, you walk out of the zoo alive. You still have all your body parts. If the zoo simply posted a positive declaration that, hey, we value life and we want you to keep your hands, without the negative warning of do not touch, it probably wouldn't be as effective. So my kids, they do not know the dangers of a lion. To them, it's a big fluffy cat. And so when dad or the zoo are preventing them from touching the big cat, they think we are controlling. So you show them a few YouTube videos of a lion chasing a gazelle, and that's the end of that. <laughs> but so it is with, the, with God's love, with God's law. It can feel restrictive. It can feel controlling. But actually, God as a father who loves and cares for his children, his law is a grace. It's there to serve our best interest. We might not yet understand how, but our lack of understanding does not negate the reality. He's the creator. We are his creatures. He knows what is good for us better than we do. And so the seventh commandment is expressed as a do not. You shall not commit adultery. It's a negative expression. But what is the positive application that God intends to accomplish through this command? And so before we go into what God prohibits, many of us came here ready to hear a list of do not do's. We'll get there. Um, but first, let's look at what God intends. What does he promote? What does he allow? If the do not touch signs at the zoo, all the fences, all the glass is there to protect our life, what is God protecting? What is he preserving? Ultimately, I hope that this morning we see that this command is for the protection of our marriages it's a definition of proper sexual relations. And God's intention through this law is our flourishing. It's our blessing. Sex is like fire. Would you agree? So you're like, where, where are you going? <laughs> it's everywhere. And it could bring other, either utter destruction or it could be lots of good. So as we did before with our other commandments, let's look at this commandment through the grid of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. What and how did God intend sex to be? If we try to define sex post-fall, through the lens of the fall, we can get really confused. If we look for definition and meaning for sex in our culture, we will be very confused. If we uh, look at the way sex was defined by church throughout 2,000 years, we will be very, very confused. <laughs> There's all sorts of weird stuff. 
So we need to look at Scripture and go back to where it all started to see God's original intent and design for sex and for marriage. What were God's intentions and how did he establish marriage and sex? And so, if you go with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, we see that God creates man. He creates the male and female. It's the establishment of gender. It's right there. It's very clear. In verse 28, we read, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. There are some pretty clear instructions. Fill the earth. Multiply, Adam and Eve. How are you going to do that? The only to, way to fulfill this command is to have sex. Lots of it. <laughs> it's a big earth. Only two people. <laughs> Some of you are getting it. Genesis 1:31. After God blesses them, he gives them the commission. Look what God says. Genesis 1:31. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. What does God think of sex? It's very good. So the biblical view of sex begins with the fact that sex is a good gift from God. Can we agree on that? And then Genesis chapter 2, God brings Eve to Adam. He takes her as his wife. And then we have this declaration about marriage. Genesis 2.24 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So marriage is leaving father and mother Father and mother, the relationships that you would have with them were, were, were some of the closest and the, and the greatest relationships in the comparison to everything else. But marriage is leaving all that behind and in turn to unite and to hold fast to the one, to one another as one flesh. And so the union of marriage is elevated as the highest form of relational commitment that we have. Two people, through marriage, becoming one flesh. And here's how deep this relationship is. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. As we read this, as we look at Genesis 1, as we look at Genesis 2, do you see any negative connotation of sex? No. There's no fear. There's no embarrassment. It's not disgusting. It's not shameful. Adam and Eve are not like shy. God is not shy. 
Instead, seeing each other the way they were, naked, fully exposed, fully vulnerable before one another, they were unashamed. Furthermore, let's go to Proverbs chapter 5. Um, this is Solomon's instruction to his son. Um, and he spends the first part of the chapter warning against adultery. And now in Proverbs 5, uh, 15 through 19, he gives his son a positive vision for sex. Okay? So Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. He said, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. And if you go to Song of Solomon, you see the same replies from women making those, those same observations of their husbands. Just a clear, just a clear acknowledgement of delight and desire for the husband, clearly spelled out in Song of Solomon. So it's not just men desiring their wives, it's also wives desiring their husbands. So what do we see here? Look at how he describes sex within marriage. There's joy. He says rejoice in the wife of your youth. There's blessing. There's delight. He says, be intoxicated with her love. This is a very positive view of sexuality. I would encourage you to go home and read through Song of Solomon. The Bible is never pornographic, but some stuff in there is pretty erotic. Some of you are more prude with your spouses than the Bible is. But when we look at Scripture and we look for definition of what does God intend for sex to be, we see that it is a gift from God. It is good. It's an act between a husband and a wife, and it's an expression of their love and their oneness. There is no shame, no condemnation, no fear, and it's to fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply, but not just that, it's for the joy, for the delight, and the blessing of the husband and wife. And so to embrace this idea of marriage and sexuality is good. To practice this is good. But we all know, if you have been married for any period of time, it's obviously not that simple. And so this morning, what I want to do with you guys is fight for a high view of marriage. I don't think today we need more scientific methods. I don't think we need, here's five things to do to get a better sex life. 
or get a happier marriage. What we need is a high view of marriage. And I hope that if we have a biblically positive view of marriage, then this command to not commit adultery becomes a self-evident and obvious. So, um, we're going to get into a little bit into marriage. Guess if you guys have been to a wedding recently, you've heard some of this stuff, but we're still going to go over it. So, at the heart of marriage, at the heart of the union, is what? It's a, it's a covenant. And the idea of a covenant, where we get it, it comes directly from God. God makes the best covenants, and God always keeps his covenants. There's many examples of that through scriptures. We're not going to get into that today. So at the heart of marriage is the covenant. It's two people promising before God, before witnesses to one another, that they commit themselves to one another for life. A covenant is not a contract. The world approaches marriage as a contract. A contract says, here is what I want from this relationship, and if I don't get it, well, the contract is broken and I'm out. Sadly, we have adopted a lot of those ideas. It's an exchange of goods. I give you this, you give me that, as soon as you stop giving, I'm out. Contract asks, what do I get out of this? Marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. The vows that we give to one another reflect the complete opposite nature of a contract. It's giving oneself to one another. We say the vows. We say in sickness and in health. Poverty or riches, and so on. In other words, I am committed to you even if the world falls apart. So at the heart of a covenant is I give myself to you. And even in the most difficult times, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to continue to give myself to you. That's a covenant. And so the greatest model of this covenant, the greatest expression of it in full perfection is the covenant that is between Christ and the church. We bring that as an example for marriages, for weddings, and often we go to Ephesians 5, and I want to go there with you guys this morning. Ephesians 5 Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Likewise, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. We hear this all the time. Wives submit as church submits to Christ. Husbands love 
as Christ loves the church. It's almost cliche. We, we hear it so often, we don't even think about it. But let's think about it. Christ gave himself for the church. He laid down his life for the church. And in response, the church submits, the church gives herself to Christ. The relationship is not I take and you take, and if we don't get what we want, we're out. No, the relationship is both give. Christ gives his life, he initiates, and we respond and give our lives to him. If you're a Christian, then you should, should have made a covenant with Christ. We make that covenant through baptism. And through baptism, we proclaim, Christ gave his life for me. He saved me. He loved me, and now I am giving my life to him. We publicly proclaim, we publicly make that covenant. And then every week, what do we do? We come to church, and we remember that covenant. We remember the covenant that Christ made with us. The cup, the bread, they represent him giving himself to us. And so we remember both the covenant he made to us and the covenant we made to him. And then we go out, hopefully reminded of the reality of this covenant. Christ laid his life, he gave himself for me, and now I give myself to him in a life of obedience and submission to him. There's mutual giving. Except he always gives, we don't always give. And so the mutual giving, it is built on a covenant, a covenant of his blood that redeemed us from sin. So now marriage. We talk about how marriage is to display this union. We are to be marriages that display the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so marriage is a covenant where two people are committing, they are giving their lives to one another. So now how does sex fit into this? In marriage, you make a covenant to one another. You give yourself to one another. And sex is the consummation of that. When you physically join, when you physically give yourself to one another. We lost the sacredness of that because we just have lost the high view of marriage and of sex. Jesus said, what God joined together, let no man separate. There is a joining that takes place and that is why sex is sacred. It's the representation of the act of that joining. And so sex is to reflect the covenant that you made. Sex is not con like a contract. Sex is not, please me, what do I get out of this? I need, my, I need to satisfy myself. 
No, sex is to reflect the covenant. It's giving yourself to your spouse. To reinforce this, let's go to 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 3 to 5. Paul says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal or married rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. I'm going to stop right there. Do you see what Paul is after? This verse does not make sense in a contract. It makes perfect sense in a covenant. It doesn't work when the mindset is, I take what I want. It only works in marriage is to give. And so Paul says, when you get married, the rights to your bodies, spouses, they don't belong to you anymore. They belong to one another. You gave those rights away to your spouse. If you're planning to have that conversation with your spouse, you're welcome. (laughs) And so sex, it becomes the greatest expression of the covenant. In the covenant we say, I promise to give myself to you. We seal that promise with sex. And guess what? It continues on. Sex becomes the renewal and the reminder of the covenant that you have made to one another over and over again. We have a covenant with Christ. We remember it through communion. We have a covenant with our spouse. You remember it through sex. Now, Let's go back to the commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The world, the world, the people around us will agree with the fact that adultery is not good. Our culture, as sexual as it is, it still condemns adultery. And the reason, the reason why, if you ask, is, well, you're hurting your spouse. That's the main reason. You're hurting someone. And it's true. But adultery is so much more than that. If we understand what the covenant is, then adultery is breaking of the covenant of marriage. It's the disjoining what God has joined together. It's a failure to be a witness of the union between Christ and the church. So it's not just a sin against your spouse, but it's a sin against God. Because you're not just breaking the marriage covenant, but you are breaking the covenant you made with the Lord. Our culture says, sex is all about you. It's about your fulfillment, your gratification, and idolatry is just that. It's the breaking of the covenant is exactly that. It's a shift from self-giving to your spouse and to God to self-seeking, self-serving. 
Tim Keller says, the covenant of marriage and sex within marriage says, I belong completely and exclusively and permanently to you. End quote. And the act of idolatry is the exact opposite. Joining with someone physically without joining, emotionally, legally, spiritually, personally, economically. C.S. Lewis says it's like chewing food but never swallowing or digesting it, but just spitting it out. Sex is God's design. Marriage is God's design. And God intended sex to be the most sacred most vulnerable of acts of oneness within marriage. The covenant of marriage provides a space for the flourishing of this intimate relationship as they seek to give oneself to one another. And adultery destroys that design. It violates God and the person that you committed yourself to. It violates them too. Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among you, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, adul adultery, it never comes out of nowhere. Uh, we can maybe point to a problem in a marriage here or there. We can point to neglect or whatever it is that may, might have caused it. But Jesus goes directly to the source of the issue to show us where adultery comes from. Open with me to Matthew 5.27. Matthew 5.27, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit Adultery. Jesus is quoting commandment number seven. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole body be thrown into hell. Here's how we see uh, the law work itself out through scriptures. This is every law. The Ten Commandments, as we saw before when we started the series, they are the moral law of God. They never change. They're, they are as eternal as God himself. In Genesis, we see they, they are implied. God still judges according to the Ten Commandments. In Exodus, they are spelt out. We see that in chapter 20. That's what we're going through right now. And then through the rest of the Bible, they are defined. Moses, the prophets, Jesus, the apostles, what they do is they define what these commandments mean. So this is what Jesus is doing here. He just finished saying that hate is the murder of the heart. And now he's going into commandment number seven. He's not redefining it, but he is defining it. Meaning, it always meant this. And what Jesus does here, he goes straight to the source and tells us exactly where the problem lies. And he says, physical 
Adultery begins with the adultery in the heart. It's not just the actual affair that is breaking God's law. But it is the adultery of the heart. When you look at a woman or a man and entertain lustful desires, you are committing adultery in the heart. And those are not my words, those are Jesus' words. And here we got to stop and define lust. Um, lust is not sexual desire. We already established that sexual desire is God's gift to us. Lust is, not, is also not a recognition of beauty. But lust is sexual desire directed at a person we are not in a covenant of marriage. It is to desire to engage in sexual relations with them. And so what is the judgment for that sin? Verse 29. Tell. And so in verse 29, Jesus gives us instructions to radically deal with lust. He says, guard your eye, because the eye is the window into the heart. Guard the heart. And guarding the heart against lust is fighting sin in your heart before it ever can come forth. It's confessing it. It's repenting from it. It's resisting it. Adultery is destructive. It is expensive. Many of us have witnessed it in our friends and family. Practically, what does this mean? It means don't view people as objects. View them as God's creation that has dignity, that has value, that has worth. Pay attention to the way you dress. Are you provoking? Are you stirring up lust? The one who lusts obviously will give the account for his sin, but God has clearly commanded us to have modest apparel. We're not going to get in, into that. I know it's relative. I know all that stuff. We're not going there today. The point is pay close attention in your closet. Ask your spouse. If you're not married, ask your mother, ask your father, hey, is this appropriate? It's kind of comical. I'm sure you guys have witnessed this before. Um, sometimes you pull up to a store and you see um, there's a couple walking in and um, the girl is walking in front. She's barely dressed. The guy's walking behind her, and what he's doing is he's scanning the horizon. Who's staring at my girl? There's a simple solution for that. And you could always be naked in your room or in your privacy. Guys, if the answer to your wife is, I like what I see, it's okay. Go. You can wear that. Understand, other guys may like what they see. 
we live in a very sexualized culture. And so fashion world will reflect that culture. Be aware of those things. Guys, appreciate your wife for more than just her sexual beauty and attractiveness. Some of you are not happy with me right now. (laughs) That's okay. We live in a different kingdom. We do not live in the kingdom of this world. We do not submit to the kingdom of this world. But we live for the kingdom of God. And that should be reflected in how we value one another, how we view each other, not as objects. And that should also reflect on how we present ourselves to one another. So we come to the next obvious question, and it is, is adultery the only sexual sin that is covered by the seventh commandment? Some make the, some make the argument that, hey, it only co- covers adultery, so as long as I'm not married, I could do whatever I want. It's for, only for the married people. In short, No. It's not just for the married. It covers all sexual sin. Like we saw, Jesus takes commandment seven and he makes it a heart issue, a lust issue. And we know that it's not just married men and women who struggle with that. Single men and women struggle with that as well. And the apostles also built on this commandment. And when they instruct us to live sexually pure lives, And this is what Paul says to the unmarried. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 9, and then we find that as well in verse 36. He says to the single people, If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So someone who's not married is burning with passion. They can't control their sexual drive. What should they do? Go find a girl or guy at work, at school, or at church and go shack up with them for a couple of months? Is that Paul's solution? No. He says if you can't stay celibate, then he points to marriage as the covenant in which your sexual desire is to be expressed. And so anything outside of that, it undermines and it violates God's intended design for your sexual desires and it breaks God's commandment. Now, if you're single, um, either widowed or have not had a chance to get married, listen, if you've made a covenant with Jesus, then you have committed yourself to something far greater than the covenant of marriage. Christ has given himself to you. You have given yourself to Christ. And so the question now is not what will make me happier, singleness or marriage. We don't operate that way. That's a very self-serving heart. What will make me happier, singleness or marriage? What should make, we should make distinctions not based on our happiness. And so the question becomes, as those under the covenant of Jesus who are here to serve and give our lives to Jesus. So the question now becomes, 
what will further serve Jesus? My singleness or my marriage? And so your priority, your purity, your abstaining from sexual immorality, it becomes a worship to Jesus. It's not a deprivation. It's not limitation from happiness. No, but your purity and your singleness, it becomes a worship to Jesus as you give yourself to him in the covenant. Listen, Paul's very clear that the one who is single does far greater good in the kingdom than the one who is married. Your time and attention, it's not divided. You don't have a spouse to please. You don't have kids to manage. You can fully devote yourself to the kingdom. And yes, you're not multiplying. You're not filling the earth. You're not being fruitful in the physical sense. But in the covenant with Christ, when you submit your life to him, when you live for his kingdom, you are committing yourself to multiplying the kingdom of God. And so that is why the Bible never minimizes singleness. But it shows that it is honorable and it serves an important purpose in the kingdom and in the church. You are not any lesser than the person who is married. On the contrary, maybe, you can do greater good for the kingdom. So, the apostles, we kind of, we kind of went from Old Testament, the command, to Jesus' description of the law, and now the apostles, they built on this thought. So let's go to the apostles. So they obviously lived in a very sexualized culture, just like ours. Um, they would say that walking through Corinth, um, the statues that were there, like there was very skilled, artful people, and the statues that were there, they were just straight up porn. Um, so the culture was very much like ours, and instructing new believers how to live their lives in submission to Christ, sexuality always came up, always. Every epistle addresses our sexuality and sexual immorality. They address orgies, homosexuality, fornication, bestiality, impurity, sexual immorality, adultery, sensuality, and sexual passion. We see that over and over again. The apostles are calling us to purity. And the majority of sexual sin described in the New Testament is described as this word, sexual immorality. If you have a King James Version Bible, it's fornication. We lost the meaning to that word. But the Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia. It's porneia. And porneia means, or it refers to, any sex other than sex with your spouse. So when Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, that's what he means. Porneia, any sex outside of marriage. It is sexual immorality. And you guys might be, it might ring some, turn on some bulbs in your head. That word porneia, obviously that's where we get the word porn from. Pornography. 
porn is covered under sexual immorality, self-stimulation, it's all covered under this command. Porn is one of the greatest ways this command is broken today. It's convenient. It does not involve anybody. It's endless. It could be done in private, yet it's destructive and it is devastating. Also covered are, if we, if we, if we take if we take the definition that the scripture gives us, which we should, any sexuality outside of marriage, outside of you and your spouse, is sexual immorality, then that applies to romantic novels, explicit shows, music, games, and the list can go on and on and on. We are to adopt a proper view of sexuality and marriage. And that way, we don't need a list of do's and do not do's. Cultivating or getting sexually aroused outside of your spouse is porneia. It's sexual immorality and God forbids it. One of the greatest rebellions against God and his design for marriage and sexuality is displayed in our culture through the sexual revolution. We can say that it started in the 1950s, 1960s, wherever, but it really started in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall. The goal of the enemy was to revolt against God and his design for us. And so the culture says, Instead of sex and marriage and marriage between a man and a woman, sex is any way you want it, however, whenever, with whomever, as long as there's consent, they say. And those who oppose them, those who oppose the sexual revolution, are bigots, are haters, are unloving. The world's idea of sex is all about me, my desires, my gratification. God's design for sex is giving. It's about serving. It's about deeply knowing. It's about belonging. And that can only happen in the context of marriage. The world, the world says sex is uh, self-expression, self-fulfillment. God says sex is to give pleasure to another. Tim Keller says it's self-donation. And so where is our culture today? The sexual revolution is supposed to make everybody happier. Are we any better off? No. Obviously, we're not. Uh, there's a Pew Research um, study done this past November. And the conclusion, here's the, conclusions, the conclusion that they came to. Um, they went through 10,000 couples. Mind you, this is 2019. This is after the marriages have been embattled, have been beaten with the sexual revolution. 
These marriages are tired. These marriages are confused. And listen to the response. The share, quote, the share of adults who have lived with a romantic partner is now higher than the share of those who have ever been married. But married adults are more satisfied with their relationships, more trusting in their partners. This is as the attack on the marriage is happening. The life of freedom, of the sexual revolution, that is supposed to bring you happiness. The life of marriage is supposed to be slavery. God's command is supposed to be restrictive. Yet this secular study shows us a different picture. We can talk about this topic for the next year and still not exhaust it. In conclusion, if, you got, if you're going to take anything away from this message, take this. God, your creator, gave you your sexuality. It's good. It's a gift from him. And he knows the best way that we are to express it. And that's through marriage. Every act of sex, every lustful desire outside of marriage is against God and it violates his good law. Oftentimes, God refers to his unfaithful people as an adult, adulterous people. People that betrayed him. People that went for other gods. People that were unfaithful to him. Here's the thing, we all broke this law. That's who we all were. We had another lover, a lover that left us empty, left us wanting more. We've wasted our love, and it never satisfied us, but it left us broken and ashamed. We were unlovable. We had nothing good to offer. And Jesus came running for us. He came to lay his life down for us. For our sakes, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who, known, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here's how he laid down his life. Here's how he gave himself. Every sexual impurity that you did, every unclean thought that you thought, every God that you have chased pointlessly, endlessly, wasting your love, he took it all upon himself. Our, your sexual impurity was laid on Jesus, the perfect, righteous Jesus was made to be sin. So that the perfect righteousness of Jesus, the purity and the innocence of Jesus would become yours. That is the good news of the gospel. That is what Christ did. And here's the deal, we tend to stop there. We tend to be like, oh, we were bad. We broke the law. 
Jesus saved us. He made us righteous, and now we get to go home and celebrate. We tend to stop there. That's true. That's powerful. But remember, we are in a covenant with Jesus. He gave his life for us. Now we give ourselves to him. Just like he sacrificed his love for us, we give and sacrifice our lives to him in obedience and submission to his will and desires for our life. Church, flee from sexual immorality. Fight against lust. And worship him. If you're single with your purity, worship him. If you're married, by giving yourself to your spouse, that in all things, we church, can bring glory to God, even in our sexuality. Let's pray. Father, we are so easily deceived. We are so easily to, to, to wonder, to go astray, to believe the lies of the enemy, to follow our flesh, to follow our culture. And yet over and over again, it leaves us empty. It leaves us wanting for more. And Father, we thank you that the way, the way for our sexuality to be enjoyed, to be delighted in and to be blessed by it was not hidden from us. Lord, you created the covenant of marriage. You gave us spouses, Lord, where we can display this love. Lord, we thank you for that gift. And Father, I pray for Shorebreak Church. I pray for every single one of us here that we would be resilient, that we would fight against the desires of our flesh, that we would fight against lust. If there is any emotional entanglement, Father, I pray against those things, Lord. I pray the entanglements, the lustful entanglements of the heart. Lord, I pray for purity in our church, God. May we be couples. May we have marriages. May we uh, be singles who represent and demonstrate the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the covenant that you have made with us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.